We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. So I am so excited today to be joined by Pastor Jerry Cook of Freedom's Way Baptist Church in Santa Clarita. And um, I'm gonna, in a moment, he's going to tell a little bit about his background and your journey. But uh, I just want to say thank you because I've had the opportunity to connect with you a little bit, hear your story. And you are someone that is really instrumental, in my opinion, for helping to save this country. What we've seen in the last three, almost three years now, of uh, um, the government inserting itself in so many ways, it's a violation of not only the state constitution, but the federal constitution, sure. locking down the state, locking down the, the country, telling people that they are not allowed to go to church, but they're allowed to go to Walmart. Um, and, and just the violations and the fact that we had so many... Um, people complying with this. So you're someone that is unique because you stood up and you said, no, I'm not going to go along with this. I'm not going to comply. I, uh, this is a total violation and it is my right as a citizen of the United States of America, as a citizen of the state of California, and more importantly, someone that is led by God to say, no, I'm not going to comply with this. So tell everyone, uh, your background and, um, welcome. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Laura, for the opportunity to, to share my side of this. Mm -hmm. um, appreciate the uh, work that the Unity Project does, mm -hmm. and uh, of, cor for, of course, folks at our church are always online there, and, and the fact that you guys made the Epic Times the other day was kind of exciting as well. That was so exciting. That was uh, an exhilarating thing, and uh, who knows? Who knows where this will all go, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, um, I've had the privilege of pastoring the same church for 20 years, mm -hmm. uh, just celebrated our 20th anniversary in March of this year. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, uh, we had a three-way merger in 2019 between uh, a New Life Church, our church, and Sloan Canyon Church. Mm -hmm. And this was an amazing thing because as a church plant, we never had our own building for years. We met in three different locations over three different, you know, over uh, three different locations over the point of about 17 or 18 years. Interesting. Uh, and finally... God opened a door to where we can actually get into a beautiful piece of property mm -hmm. uh, on the uh, northern end, northwestern end of Santa Clarita, mm -hmm. and we merged March 1st, 2020. Biggest crowds ever in our history. And then two weeks later... Wow. Two weeks to stop the spread. That's right. <laughs> And so AKA it was a little it was a little disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, it was a little disconcerting because I started saying first of all, I didn't even think at all that this was going to turn out to be some two-year charade. Right, none of us did. Yeah, I yeah. didn't think this was going to be much. In fact, I just kept thinking because we had the right guy in office, I'm thinking this thing's going to just blow over two weeks. Okay, mm -hmm. that's fine. But even with the two weeks to stop the spread, 
mm-hmm. uh, there was a huge push to have businesses, places of worship, and other mm-hmm. organizations shut down. Right. And I will concede there was a brief moment in my mind that I mm-hmm. thought that might be the best thing to do, considering we do have uh, elderly folks in our church. Sure. And that was how it was initially uh, promulgated, is mm-hmm. this was going to be devastating to the elder, uh, the elderly community, especially with those with underlying conditions. And then, of course, I didn't want any of our elders to die. Of course I, not. I, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. want to be a shepherd that's going to just you know, go and kill the sheep. Right. So <laughs> let's hope th- not. There was a brief That'd be an moment. interesting church. If exactly. That was the case. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> Go to the sh- church where the shepherd kills the sheep. But there was a brief moment where I thought, hmm, I'll ask the deacons, I'll bring them into my office and ask mm-hmm. them what they want to do. Right. And I, I offered the opportunity. I said, hey, listen, we could close down for two weeks and just go online, which ironically, that same year in 2020, this was our first year we'd ever gone online. We'd, had, we'd done things on YouTube, things of that nature, but this right, was the right. first time we'd live, live-streamed our services, so it was kind of ironic, maybe a little right. bit of providential you, you guys thing. Were, right, we were prepped for this. Yeah, we were prepped. It was providential. But our deacons looked at me. They're not yes-men. Uh, you know, they, they will push back on me if they, if they feel led to. Mm-hmm. But they looked at me and said, no, Pastor, there's no need to do that because it's not our authority, and it's not your authority right. to tell the Lord Jesus Christ who started the church that now we can unilaterally shut it down. Interesting. Okay, so that was so so early on. Then um, you guys had support, at least uh, within the leadership of the church, to stay open. Yeah, uh, the leadership did not want to shut, and in fact, it just emboldened me afterwards. And I says, "Well, the guys are with me, so I guess we'll stay open." So, what did the what did the the people that were coming to the church? What did they, what did they feel? Did you get were you getting <laughs> feedback? Were you asking? Well, you know, you always hope that those who speak well and speak high of you in good times uh, would stick with you during bad times. And it's amazing, you know, when things are going well, people will talk big. You know, they'll say things like, yeah, I'll go to prison with you, Pastor, doesn't matter what happens, I'm going to go there with you. You know, woe is me. And then uh, the government comes in and says, uh, shut everything down and... uh, I basically said the Sunday before the two weeks to stop the spread incident occurred, Mm -hmm. I simply stood behind my pulpit and I said, listen, they're asking us uh, to stay and and, and, uh, go home and hunker down for a couple weeks. If you feel you need to do that for your safety, uh, you have the liberty and the freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I just want you to know that I will be here, there will be several men here, and we will continue to have live services if you so choose to come. So we went from 200 plus Mm -hmm. to 46. Okay. Very quickly. All right. And so, but we kept at least 40 people attending for a great, mm, I'd say about four, five, six, seven weeks. And then in June of that year, June or July of that year, Mm -hmm. I just said, this is silly, silly, silly. We need to get these folks back. And then that's the, probably the next almond of our, of our conversation. Right. So, so those 46 that were, were staying there from the very beginning, were you guys employing any of the, um, the government protocols that we now know were actually ineffective? Sure. Uh, I told them they could do what they wanted to do because mm-hmm. I didn't have all the information at the time. Right. If they wanted to wear a mask, they could wear a mask. If they did not want to wear a mask, they did not have to wear a mask. I wasn't there to... 
uh, infringe upon their liberties either way. Right, right. And so uh, we had ladies that were older that did, mm-hmm. and I wasn't worried about that. Sure. And then there were guys and gals that weren't wearing masks, and hopefully the other folks weren't worried about that. Right. Now, we did have a little bit of, you know, we had a couple guys in there that I would consider more Alex Jonesy guys <laughs> that, um, you know, they're always upset when someone wears a mask. And I just simply have to tell them, I said, listen, we believe in liberty and freedom. Right. Even if you don't like the freedom and liberty that they're choosing for themselves, it doesn't matter. You just need to respect that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there were a couple times where I had to kind of calm the masses a little bit with the one or two guys uh, that always cause problems. But, but by and large, Laura, I would say that our church uh, really didn't implement any of what Fauci or, or the government suggested that we implement. We just left that up to, well, well-meaning adults. And in those five weeks, right, you, you said between March and, and probably the beginning of June, mm-hmm. right, were you guys getting harassed by the state? Not necessarily the state. Now, we did get some... We had a cease and desist order sent to us um, by, I forget who right now, mm-hmm. um, mainly because I didn't pay attention to it and didn't read it very well, so <laughs> I can't really tell you who it was from. But there was a cease and desist order. Uh, we did have some pushback from the community, mainly folks that probably didn't care about us being there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to do what I felt like I needed to do and what I felt like the Lord would want me to do. Mm-hmm. And so I just made the call that we were going to stay open, that we were going to do everything that we could possibly do. Now, I, we did our best to, uh, you know, if you wanted to sit away from somebody, that's totally fine. Sure. We, we have a sanctuary that seats 200. If you're 46 people, you can find a spot of course. to not sit next to somebody, <laughs> right. you know? And so if you wanted to do this whole, you know, six feet thing, fine. Uh, but, um, yeah, there was a little bit of that. Uh, the cease and desist order went nowhere. Now there were, uh, pastor friends that I, that I have that, you know, had to pay fines. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, uh, I wouldn't say a friend, but an acquaintance up North, uh, that had to pay several thousands of dollars in fines. Now granted, uh, he, he's a, all that money's come back to him essentially. Right. Right. Um, and then a, a few others as well here locally in Southern mm-hmm. California. But uh, let me just say, Laura, obviously we kept our church open, right. but there were several others that kept their doors opened as well. Right. And thank God for them, I wasn't just the only guy in the foxhole. Sure, and I. It, it, but again, I think you speak. You, you're what we're doing today and talking about this is representative of every one of their um, impact on turning around what's happening in this country. Yeah. And, and I think we're moving the needle forward. So. So fast forward now, it's June timeframe. You decide we've got to get people back, physically back into yeah. church. How do you go about doing that? Well, I went through an old playbook, uh, some Baptist <laughs> preachers that uh, I had read from the 50s and 60s, which is the heyday of a lot of churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go back and study, the 50s and 60s tend to be the the, the two decades where church growth was phenomenal, mm-hmm. uh, Rick Warren notwithstanding. And so um, there was a particular special Sunday that this particular church in Indiana employed, mm-hmm. where they uh, brought in a bunch of barbers and brought in a bunch of uh, beauticians and uh, just said, hey, you come to church, we're going to cut your hair for free, and we're going to, you know, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of these guys had not come, had not gone to the barber because the barber shops were closed. A lot of the ladies had not, sure. ha- have had to do their own hair, bless God. And um, <laughs> man, that was scary. Uh, nevertheless, it was like the church of Phyllis Diller. But nevertheless... Um, 
I said, you know what? Let's employ this. Let's bring in my barber, uh-huh. who thankfully was cutting my hair at my home, or I would go right. to his house. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were all kinds of speakeasy. Oh, we did. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember. What's the secret password, well, right? I, I will never forget. I, had, I was uh, still working in corporate America at the time, and I had this employee come in, and she said, uh, do you mind if I, if I leave a little early? <laughs> And I said, sure, no problem. And she, you know, like, what you know, you don't have to tell me, but but you seem very cryptic. And she yeah. said, oh yeah, I'm going to get my nails done. Yeah. And I said, oh my gosh, you have a person. She says, oh yeah, yeah. There's this this place. And I said, well, I want in. Tell them that I'm cool. Get, I, I just just you know speak on my behalf. So we kind of it was it was kind of a joke, right? So they give us the password, and we went. And I brought my Swordfish. daughter. Yeah, I brought my daughter, and it was the funniest experience. My my daughter was, you know, of course, thinking, "Oh my God, Mom, we're gonna get in trouble. We're gonna get arrested. No, no, no just be cool. Everyone, just be cool, right?" So we go into this speakeasy nail salon, and it was the funniest thing because you go in, and the, you know, out from the outside, it looks like it's a, an abandoned building. You go in, and there's all these women, and you know, wines being passed around, and everyone's getting their nails done and their hair done, and it was so. So yes, I can I can see why bringing in, um, you know, someone who's a barber and a and, and a beautician. Yes. Yeah. So basically, we had a Baptist speakeasy. Okay. Yeah, that right. was basically it. You know, you had to have the password. The password was Jesus Christ, and everything was good. And but yeah, that kind of uh, that kind of broke it open. It allowed people to get around each other. They realized mm-hmm. that. Now let me just also say, folks in our church got sick. I got sick. Yeah. You know, my wife got sick. She brought it home, and <laughs> you know, my kids never got sick. And if they did, they just you know they tested positive, but they didn't have any any sure. symptoms at all. Mm-hmm. But I do remember when I when I did get sick. You know, the the big thing was uh, you couldn't smell anything. Mm-hmm. And yes, in my home. In my home, forgive me, Carl, for this, bacon is a big deal. Oh, sure. And um, man, I could smell bacon a country mile. And my <laughs> wife was frying bacon. She was making BLTs for lunch. I was upstairs. Usually that, sells, that smell just wafts sure. through my home. It's a great smell. And my wife uh, says, hey, I'm cooking bacon, honey. And I'm like, you are? Wow. And I could not smell. Now, granted, I did not get major, major sick, mm-hmm. but there was a 24-hour period where I was basically down for the count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of you know closed the, sh- the shades, and I was mm-hmm. in my own little misery. Uh, my wife as well for at least one day, but then we just kind of you know got back into it. Sure. So, but we 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 have one person in our church that died not because of COVID primarily, mm-hmm. but because she had COPD, which duh is mm-hmm. a huge problem if if you <laughs> want to breathe. Uh, sure. And so uh, COVID was kind of like the nail in the coffin for her. Well, and I would also add that um, not knowing the story, I would assume that she did not receive early intervention um, of, no. effective me- with, of an effective protocol that we know exists. No. So potentially and, and her life re- could have been saved. It's possible. And of course, she was already briefed on remdesivir. And uh, we encouraged her to make her own choice on the matter. However, mm-hmm. I did say uh, I would suggest that you not take it. Mm-hmm. But again, I left that that decision in her hands because sure. obviously this is her life, not mine. Sure. Uh, but uh, un- well, unfortunately, she succumbed to it. You know, those are the decisions that you leave in the hands of the, the, should be between the patient and the doctor. Sure. Right. And and this is why I'm so incredibly outraged. And and one of the reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing and the Unity Project is doing what it's doing is because no longer are we operating in a medical system where a patient can go and seek out appropriate medical care and the doctor is free 
to um, exercise and engage in the practice of medicine with the plethora of options that are out there, whether Absolutely. it's pharmaceutical or more holistic approaches. I'll give you a great example, Laura. Uh, we have a, a gentleman that just came out of the hospital yesterday after about a month and a half being there. Mm-hmm. He went in for some back issues, spinal issues, had an esophageal surgery. Mm-hmm. And then while in the hospital, by the way, he's never been vaccinated, never been, none of that, mm-hmm. went to the hospital, was there for two and a half weeks, uh, you know, uh, in isolation essentially. You cannot walk into Henry Mayo a Hospital here in Santa Clarita without mm-hmm. having been vaxxed. So I could not visit him. Of course. Um, but end up getting COVID mm-hmm. in the hospital mm-hmm. with a bunch of nurses and a bunch of doctors that are masked and vaxxed. Of course. The irony of ironies. He, of course, asked for you know hydroxychloroquine. He asked for ivermectin. Mm-hmm. Of course, all of that was refused with the strictest of protocols. Right. And mm-hmm. now, God bless him, he got over it. It wasn't a big deal for mm-hmm. him. Frankly, I believe, just my theory on this, is they actually wanted him out of the hospital a week earlier, Mm -hmm. and I think that they probably said he got COVID, so the insurance would probably give him an influx of money, but that's just my thoughts on it. But that's just a conspiracy. Well, listen, we've talked about this in at great length in other podcasts, and we know that there is a financial incentive Absolutely. in the hospital system to identify anyone that is COVID positive because they get a higher reimbursement. There's there's just a, we, it's a known fact that there is a financial incentive to have patients um, correlated with COVID. They were adamant about having him out of the hospital five six days earlier. I mean, adamant. They were calling me, calling my wife. We were we were we were his primary contacts. It wasn't mm-hmm. his family. We were his primary contacts, and we, they kept they kept vacillating back and forth about whether or not they were going to let him out. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, conveniently, he's COVID positive. Right. And I says, well, well they found a good five or six more days well, to keep how, him there. And how terrifying that must be. I can tell you that I personally feel like um, if anyone that I cared about was COVID positive and they were uh, taking a turn for the worse, like they're in end stages of COVID sure. and we're starting to see some of the respiratory impact... I would be extremely hesitant to take a someone that I care about and put them in a hospital setting knowing that the known protocol has dire outcomes for people that have that are in um, compromised situations with COVID. Absolutely. And thankfully, he's out of the hospital. He got out yesterday. My wife picked him up last night around 8 o'clock. Uh, I texted him this morning to see how his first night was at home, but uh, he hasn't texted me back yet. Hopefully, everything's okay. But... Uh, yeah, it's just an amazing situation. And, and and I just want to be clear, I'm not in any way encouraging people to not seek medical care. Of course not. Um I'm I'm saying that I ha- there are known um dangers with the current COVID protocols that we are seeing um and we have been seeing deployed as a response to this pandemic. Precisely. And in reality, this pandemic it actually serves a twofold purpose. Number one, uh I think it's kind of a uh a way of kind of testing the waters to see just what people can put up with in terms sure. of their rights and their privileges being infringed upon. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a, there was a, an element of our society that was kind of watching from the wings, just observing to see, you know, just what would people endure? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we know that, you know, there are some places like Australia and Canada, you know, they, they're like up there in the North Korea element of where things went during the whole lockdown situation. Amazing. Yeah, right? amazing, totally. Uh, but then, of course, there were a bunch of non-compliant people here in the United States because, you know, by by 
by natural osmosis, we're kind of doing our own <laughs> thing here sure, in the United it's States. In, you it's know, in it, our DNA. It's in our DNA. It's the way it is. But I, I think, number one, it was for that. And then just a theory of mine, not necessarily, necessarily saying this is true, but they've always advocated for some sort of population decline. And uh, why, not, uh, why not have a, a little bit of, uh, have some people die? Well, it sure feels Allow like it. it sure it sure feels like that. I mean, if you again, if you you really look at it from the macro picture and you start to put all of the elements together um, in terms of timelines and and knowledge of the virus and the dangers of the virus and knowledge of the fact that there were in fact pharmaceutical interventions early on, um, if you put all that together, it certainly feels um, incredibly nefarious. And one has to question. And I always say one has to question. In particular, in the state of California, what is their need yeah. to push the vaccine on healthy children? Um, that <laughs> feels incredibly, incredibly nefarious. Um, Especially now, two and a half years later, mm -hmm. and you know we're, we're essentially coming out of this whole thing, whatever that whole thing means. And yeah, the fact that you've got several of these bills that are still mm -hmm. coming down through the pike here in California, in particular. And of course, whatever happens here in California has shockwaves across the nation. Absolutely. So this is why it's so important to kill these bills here. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, just the amount of control that they're seeking to have over our children. We can see that, of course, you know, within uh, the uh, the BLM movement, with the uh, CRT movement, mm -hmm. uh, with what they're trying to, you know, cram down our kids' throats in school. Mm -hmm. This is why it's so important, I think, uh, for the homeschooling movement right. to, you know, continue to gain traction. I think it's important for parents, if they can afford it, by God's grace, to send kids to private institutions uh, that are going to shield them from right. much of this junk and not require... Uh, any of these vaccinations, I think right. we still need to go back to a pre nineteen, uh, a pre twenty twenty situation where there was a little bit more freedom on that. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, we talk a lot, um, and, and we did a great podcast, I think, with a gentleman named Matt Boudreau, mm -hmm. who is working right now to help um, initiate and start um, and, and train parents really on the homeschooling benefits. And he's got um, a, a bunch of different academies that he's working on right now. But I'm a huge believer in homeschooling yeah. your children right now. I think even in the private schools, we're starting to see a lot of this this um, the dangerous ideologies seeping into the private schools. Absolutely. And of course, we now know that even with, um, should they actually resurrect SB 871, which mm. was the uh, requirement for children K-12 to be vaccinated, that actually impacts even private schools. So it's there's, there's so many things that are happening. So let's go back, though, and talk about you now are holding um, speakeasy um, <laughs> salons in your <laughs> grooming salons in your in your church. Yeah. So tell me, how did that, how did that work? Did, uh, did, it, did it have an impact? Did it bring people back into the church and make them feel more comfortable? It did. It did. Uh, we had our highest Sunday since, of course, the actual initial merge occurred in March, of, March 1st of 2020. And, uh, and, the, and, and by the way, our Easter that year was just ridiculous. I mean, April of that year was, you know, I think we had like 52 people in church and that's usually like the you know the grand banana of uh, of church going sure. on Easter Sunday, <laughs> and and you know that didn't happen for us. In fact, I think that's what we had, like our first year, twenty mm -hmm. years earlier, mm -hmm. was like around fifty or fifty one people, which I uh -huh. thought was great when we started, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, um, it brought in folks. Uh, people were getting their haircuts. You know, they looked like gentlemen. The ladies looked lovely. You know, having the beautician <laughs> there. 
And it just kind of uh, brought an energy back that mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were missing because church in the sanctuary is a lot better than church on the sofa. Sure. And you know, by that time, uh, the novelty of watching church on the sofa, I think, was wearing off, and people mm-hmm. were just kind of you know going off to the mm-hmm. mountains or the beach when, unless they were not allowed to do that at that time. I, I forget now exactly when all those restrictions came down there in right. June or July. But the fact is, and let me also mention this too, Laura. My wife and I were adamant about living our lives normally during mm-hmm. this whole period. Uh, we did our best to live our lives normally in front of our kids. Right. We still found restaurants that bucked the trend, stayed mm-hmm. open. We would shop out of our county mm-hmm. to support stores that were staying open, usually mom and pop stores. Right. We didn't right. always shop at Walmart because we knew that there was a little bit of an agenda about these big box sure. stores. And so we would support, we'd go up to Wrightwood, which mm-hmm. is uh, a mountain community about 45 minutes where I live. Mm-hmm. And we would go up there and shop at, and, and pay a little bit more money. Sure. But that was okay. We wanted to support them. There was a restaurant up there that stayed open during the whole situation. And right. we would go up there once or twice a week and support them, go out to dinner. So even during the height of the pandemic, we found places right. that were not compliant and did everything right, and we support them, and, and we do to this and day. And that's such such an important example because you know I always say if every person um, that felt like they were not in agreement with what was happening, and there are I think a majority of people that are not in agreement with what's been happening in this country, mm-hmm. um, if every person would just stop complying, they would stop shopping at the stores that sure. say no, um, you, we, you can only, sh- I remember the, you can only shop for between certain hours. That one was particularly interesting to me because <laughs> I'm not sure how you can correlate that to the, the, um, you know, some type of preventing disease transmission. Um, but if, if everyone would stop going along with this nonsense, then we would not be in this situation. You and I would most likely not even be having these types of conversations. I may not even know you. Yeah. Um, but what it, what it's done is it's actually brought together people like you and people mm-hmm. like like Carl and Jerry and others that are exercising critical thinking, good judgment, questioning. I think that's that's a really unique American characteristic, and I've I've always felt like um, that's something that I've tried to instill in my children is to question. It's our responsibility as citizens to question not only, um, you know, in your day-to-day life, but also to question the government. I think that's a great example. There's a great example I'm about to give you here, but uh, I think every American citizen needs to go through a critical thinking class. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do think that there is a a huge uh, gap between uh, what is being stated by the government and then what people are actually thinking and then trying to critically muse through their through their mind. Right. I'll give you a great example. So it's twenty late twenty twenty and my my now my ten year old who was mm-hmm. probably eight at the time, Derek, um, he's wondering, hey dad, um, if they why did they close the exit to the to the store and we're all being forced to go through this <laughs> one door yes. when prior we could go through this door to exit, but through this door to enter. Right. Now they're all forcing us to do the same thing through one door. Right. And I said, son, if only you were old enough to run for Congress. Right. <laughs> I, here's an eight-year-old right. that's looking at this thing critically, mm-hmm. going, well, if you want us to be spread apart, right. and this thing is so transmissible, which I'm sure it is, mm-hmm. then why are you forcing us to go through one door when we could go through two doors? Why are you closing down beaches and parks but keeping other stores open. Why can we go smoke pot? There you go. Why can we do, you know, why can we still, you know, 
put a couple of dollars in the in the strippers' drawers or right. whatever else is happening at that time. Uh, but yet we couldn't go to church and we couldn't do all these right. things that were beneficial for our families, uh, that kept some normalcy and sanity. Um, and thankfully, you know, my eight-year-old kid could at least see through right. a lot of this through right. critical thinking. So, But again, I think every American needs to go through a crit- critical thinking class. Right. I couldn't agree more. I'm actually reading a book by Eric Metaxas. Metaxas. Thank you. Yep. I don't know why that's a tongue twister for me. And it's, wonderful man. And, and I'm sure you've, you've probably read the book, If We Can Keep It. If We Can Keep It. And it's, it's a great book. It's a great book. And I highly encourage you know anyone who's listening to, to read it because... Um, it's something that I'm actually requiring my kids to read. It's mm-hmm. it's really important. We have an obligation as Americans to understand um, what our freedoms. How, first of all, how our freedoms came about. Yep. How this country was formed and why it's so crucially important to understand that because how quickly we can lose them. And I absolutely. Think, you know, the last two and a half years has been a tangible representation um, of just how quickly things can happen and the mechanisms that they can use to do that. And it can seem fairly innocuous, right? But, Absolutely. but like that, it can be stripped away. And so I was, when I met you and I heard your story, um, I was really excited to, to talk to you and, and dissect this because I think more Americans, if, and in particular, in the faith-based communities, had we seen more pastors and priests and rabbis um, coming together and mm-hmm. saying that really critically thinking and, mm-hmm. and asking the questions sure. of the government, why are um, my parishioners not allowed to come and worship, but yet my they can go to the local grocery store or the local Walmart or the local Target sure. and so on? Um, so it was really inspiring for me to hear that you were... Um, a pastor that was willing to stand up and critically think and say, something's not right here. Yeah. Something doesn't make sense. Yeah. And let me also, if I might, Laura, mm-hmm. say this, and, and there are exceptions to about mm-hmm. to what I'm about to tell you, but I think the bigger the church, mm-hmm. the more compromised the church tends to be. Now, there are exceptions to that. I get it. No cards and letters, please. But the fact is, <laughs> usually the larger the church, the more politically intertwined they tend to be, mm-hmm. and you know they, they have a huger impact in the community, so therefore we better close down because we have such a huge impact. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, the smaller to medium-sized churches were the, the more brazen and brave churches mm-hmm. during this whole thing, because we tended to kind of... And again, I'm not a large church. Right. We're not a small church, but not a large church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... But, you know, the Rick Warrens of the world, again, no disrespect to Rick Warren, again, no cards and letters, but, you know, he closed <laughs> down quickly. Uh, uh, Joel Osteen in Texas, he closed down and stayed closed down for months. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these megachurches, they closed down so quickly. Now, granted, some megachurches did not close down as long. Mm-hmm. Jack Hibbs out in... Uh, Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, right. he he closed down very briefly, but then got right back into it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys that have larger churches, you know, praise the Lord for them. I'm glad they did what they did. I've got a lot of grace, Laura, for churches that might have closed down for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Sure. It's the churches that closed down for these long, extended periods of time when right. the facts were already flooding in, right. when you could already make a logical conclusion to what right. was going on. You could use your critical thinking skills to then conclude 
instead of getting, you know, all the filth from Fauci. Well, you know, you just brought up a really, really interesting point that I think is incredibly poignant, at least as the research that I've done. So if you think about what's happened um, in this country in the last two and a half years, obviously the, the government was was leading the charge um, sure. with eroding at our, at our uh, freedoms. But how did they perpetrate this? There was clearly, um, you know, we've, we've talked on the podcast about the PREP Act and some other mechanisms, mm-hmm. whether it's through government overreach or, uh, you know, through politics or whether it's through, through legal branches. But there was, I think, um, a cultural shift mm-hmm. and responsibility. And what I mean by that is think about as a human being in your life, who are the two um, most influential um leaders in your life if you're in the middle of a medical crisis? What are the two individuals that you would seek out help from? My preacher and and my doctor. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Your preacher and your doctor. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, you have all of these doctors. And I actually went to um, a doctor Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, just out of curiosity, tell me about your position on the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Tell me and it was an immediate response that said, he said, oh, I really like the vaccine. I think the vaccine's great. I'm very pro-vaccine. And I said, okay, that's fantastic. Can you tell me as a medical professional, how do you do your research? How do you feel comfortable yeah. recommending this vaccine? Do you do research? Are you aware of the vac- what's contained in the vaccine? Are you researching um, uh, adverse events? And the answer that I got was, no, no, I just, I really am very pro-vaccine. And, and what, it, what it was distilled down to was that this doctor was essentially following a memo from mm-hmm. the CDC and the Absolutely. CDC directives and the NIH, and there's no critical thinking. Nope. And similarly, I would imagine in the faith-based communities, you're seeing that you either have pastors, priests, rabbis, others that are stepping up and, and critically thinking and trying to get the information so that they could be a good steward of information and pass that on to the people that they're leading. Precisely. Or much like what's happening in that scenario with the doctor, they're just simply passing on information that they're getting from the government. Yeah. Well, again, back to my point from earlier where I talked about how I think this was kind of a, a beta test for, mm-hmm. you know, just to see how compliant people are, mm-hmm. specifically within those two communities, the the, the, the medical community and the faith-based community, mm-hmm. because those are instrumental communities. Sure. I mean, huge. Mm-hmm. Just as you suggested, those were the two individuals that I would seek out if I'm making a, sure. a, a major decision, especially when it comes to my health. Right. If we can affect those two, we've essentially shut down the country in a That's lot right. of ways. But let me also add one more uh, theory as to why I think the China virus had to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Trump was just steamrolling everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, he had just come out of the success, uh, out of what the Democrats tried to do with him with the Russian collusion thing. Mm-hmm. He had beaten that essentially uh, with his State of the Union in February of 2020. He'd taken a victory lap. He'd given Rush Limbaugh, who, who would, would succumb to cancer about a year later, mm-hmm. you know, that Medal of Freedom. Uh, I mean, he was taking a victory lap. He was going into this thing. He was going to run away with it. Mm-hmm. The elites could not abide Donald Trump. Oh, I. They could not abide Donald Trump. So I think essentially the elites made a calculated decision. Again, this is just a theory <laughs> to storm the cockpit of Trump's plane and run Trump's economy headlong into COVID mountain. I, I think that there are all indicators 
to that, right? Mm-hmm. And and I want to be clear about the medical community in particular. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think doctors are bad. Um, I I what I'm disappointed in is to see that there's not critical thinking mm-hmm. beyond what is in front of them. Sure. And um, but I also realize that overlaid with the fact that doctors are probably right now. I mean, look at our medical care system is such that doctors no longer are able to engage in a truly, um, uh, I think, intimate uh, doctor-patient relationship. And what I mean by intimate is they're able to sit down, they're able to understand the patient history, they're really able to look at the macro health of that that particular patient yeah. and engage in the practice of medicine. And that's not necessarily a factor of that particular doctor. It's a factor of the medical system that we have today. Yeah. And that that you know doctors oftentimes are seeing hundreds of patients. Sure. But then you overlay it with some of these crazy Orwellian bills that have mm-hmm. come out. And, and in particular, we talked, um, I, I've actually spoken probably in almost every podcast about AB 2098. And so now you have a situation where you have um, you know, a population that's going and they're seeking out medical advice from doctors. Yeah. Doctors are either unfortunately not able to, to get the information that they need and they're just simply passing on, they're almost like an extension of the government. Sure. Then you get potentially some of the doctors that really want to stop and take the time and critically think and understand about these vaccines that are still, by the way, under an emergency use authorization. To this day, we do not have a vaccine in the United States of America for COVID-19 that is not considered under an emergency use authorization, right? (laughs) Um, And then you overlay it with AB2098, where if they, God forbid, decide that they want to engage in the true practice of medicine and dissect and understand what, what's going on with these vaccines and have the conversation with their patient, they could potentially lose their medical license. I, I agree. And really the Hippocratic Oath, which right. every medical professional is supposed to agree to mm-hmm. and abide by, is essentially, which is the medical community's Bible. Mm-hmm. It's their moral basis that has been completely thrown out. Right. There is no more Hippocratic Oath. And let me also say this to you, Laura. I think in the last two and a half years, mm-hmm. and, and this is not across the board, I'm sure there are great doctors just like there are great preachers that have mm-hmm. you know, stuck with it. There is now a tension, a palpable tension, and a doubt between the average citizen and the medical professional. Sadly. And it's it, it did not have to be, mm-hmm. but I do believe the climate of the last two and a half years has totally created that. Yeah. And it, it fostered it in many ways. Sure. And so, yeah, me, I, I, I here's my thought. If I get cancer, which, you know, praise God, I hope I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I, I guess I'm just going to have to die. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. know who I'm going to seek. Right. If I get COVID and it gets really bad, do I really want to go to the doctor and take the chance? Uh, and and have them do for me what they've done to so many other people. And so there's this doubt that has developed that should not be... It is so unhealthy. Sure. And... No, no pun intended on that, but yeah, it is unhealthy. Absolutely. And and then and then to have these bills where the political arm of the medical profession mm-hmm. are now you know s- supposedly agreeing with some of these mm-hmm. bills, and you just kind of think to yourself, what in the world? I mean, it, it's going to hell in a handbasket so quickly. It is, and and I heard something. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. I have a friend who. Um, had a family member that ended up getting COVID. Mm-hmm. And somehow this family member was able to find a doctor that was willing to write a prescription for um, you know the standard 
that what we now know is the most effective COVID protocol um, put out by the FLCCC, who's mm-hmm. also one of our strategic partners. And um, interestingly enough, the doctor prescribed this medication, and when their family member called the pharmacy to have the prescription filled, the pharmacist intervened. Can you imagine? The pharmacist intervened and said that they needed to know why they were using that type of medication. It's none of your sneaking business, why? <laughs> right. And I mean, it was such a violation of so many different codes of ethics. Yeah. Um, and so now you're even seeing where the pharmacists are intervening. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's weird. I mean, the last two and a half years has changed everything. I mean, think about all the things that have just kind of manifested themselves. Mm-hmm. You've got the misinformation, disinformation board, mm-hmm. which of course is on pause. That does not mean it stopped. It's on <laughs> pause. Uh, you've got all these weird philosophies that have just uh, started to now ingratiate themselves culturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, CRT, which of course has been around prior to 2020, but really started to gain a foothold during the last Absolutely. two and a half years. Of course. Uh, the BLM thing, of course, was was here from 2015. But really, the last two and a half years, some of the riots of 2020, all that, I mean, so much has allowed to come flooding in under the guise of pandemic and whatever else. Sure. Well, listen, at my child's school, um, under this kind of the auspices of we're we're not allowed to meet um, publicly anymore because of COVID, they spent, um, it's certainly certainly more now, but they spent in the beginning, I think (laughs) $250,000 engaging with, um, and I think it's called Education Elements, where they're supposed to do um, an equity study that was behind closed doors without the consent or knowledge of the parents oh, yes. yeah. um, in this school district. And it's, <laughs> it continues to be promoted. So I, I agree with you. I think that, that the, um, the, the way that, and I'm trying to think who's just, I just read this quote. I think it was from, um, um, my gosh, you're going to have to edit this part out. Oh who's, man. Who's the gentleman that, um, the, the neurosurgeon, what is wrong with me? My brain is not working. The neurosurgeon, black gentleman. Who oh, is? oh, Ben, Ben, ben Carson. Carson. Okay, so start from this point yeah. now. Helping and healing hands. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that Ben Carson said. I just read a quote that he's saying, you know, COVID is the mechanism that the government has used to take over the country, right? And I completely and, concur. And I 100% agree with him. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, we have to stop this, mm-hmm. right? So, I, I mean. I feel like you and I could go on for hours and hours and hours we probably and talk could. about there's so much to talk about. Sure. And I think that's the problem in and of itself is that um, as a country and as a citizen, we are faced with so much information coming at us. And I and I've always said I think that's by design, mm-hmm. right? There's so much information coming at us at all times, whether it's, you know, you wake up and you find out that uh, th- there's going to be a bill that's voted on that says kids as young as 15 years old, it was was 12, it's now amended to 15, can make their own medical decisions. To you wake up and find out that uh, Donald Trump's uh, private residence has been... Rated by the FBI. Rated, right? I mean, it's every single day you're peppered with uh, so much that's going on that you almost feel like, where do I start? And yeah. I think it's a diversionary tactic. Yeah. And I've always said the reason that, that to me, 
um, I'm passionate and the Unity Project is so passionate about what's happening as it relates to COVID-19 and the lockdowns and the masks and, and the erosion of medical freedom mm -hmm. and parental rights is because that to me is the basis of everything. If as a human being, you do not have the sacred and fundamental right to parent your child. If as a human being, you do not have the fundamental rights to move about freely in society, you have nothing. Absolutely. And uh, that to me is really the, the, the base and where everything starts. And that's for us why we're so passionate about it. And I appreciate that because obviously um, we need to have uh, we need to have voices like yours and the men and women of the Unity Project because obviously uh, we know that even our conservative bastions are becoming infiltrated by what you know Trump so referred to as the deep state. Mm -hmm. And we can't even trust... I mean, think about this. I mean, 15 years ago, we'd have been so excited to hear George Will, uh, Bill Kristol, uh, David French, mm -hmm. some of these guys that you know we considered conservative bastions you know, mm -hmm. 15, 10, 15 years ago. Today, we consider them just compromisers. And mm -hmm. I, I don't want to read the dispatch. I don't like Jonah Goldberg anymore. I don't like any of these guys. It's like Trump kind of you know, uh, flip the script on these guys, and these guys came out for what they are. But but again, yeah, I, I do think that the last two years has been a, a test case mm -hmm. uh, for what people can handle, what the medical community, what, what the medical community will will push mm -hmm. via the uh, NHA and, and, and the government and all that stuff. And also, not just the medical community, but the ministerial associations. Yes. And again, I do believe those two things. One is the doctor for the soul. The other is the doctor for the body. That's right. And if we can somehow impact those two things, mm -hmm. we've got you. That's right. Yeah, 100%. I think that um, if you can, to your point, if you can get doctors to understand, go back to the very basic tenets of their Hippocratic Oath, mm -hmm. um, we will we will start to see a lot of movement in this, this country toward course correcting. Mm -hmm. And if we can get... The ministerial, uh, ministerial, excuse me, community to rise up and to help people critically think and to ask the right questions, and to realize that, um, as Ronald Reagan said, when the government says I'm I'm from the government and I'm here to help, that you should probably run in the the opposite direction, <laughs> right? So with that, um, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for being a pillar and um, someone that is continuing to fight this fight. And uh, how can people follow what you're doing? Well, if they'd like to visit Freedom's Way Baptist Church, uh, they can at least go online and uh, go to Freedom's Way. That's Freedom's with, with an S, freedomswaybaptistchurch.com, and they can uh, check out what we believe, and they can see a bunch of sermons that have been posted over the last several weeks. Uh, and then if they wanted to come by and visit, uh, you know, the address and things of that nature are right there on the website. Uh, we've been here for 20 years, and uh, unless the Lord directs differently, we'll be here for another 20 years and continue to be a voice of biblical conservatism and political conservatism going forward. And uh, I hear there's a rumor that you have a radio show? Yes, it's a very <laughs> bad rumor uh, because uh, I believe it's true. Uh, yeah, it's called Politics in the Pulpit. It's uh, right here on KHTS, uh, the hometown station here in Santa Clarita. It's every Wednesday at 2 o'clock. Right. And so even if you're not in Santa Clarita, you can actually access you can, and listen to you that You can show. download that app, That's right? right? And uh, you can uh, listen to it anywhere. In fact, I, there'll be people listening to it today in New Mexico and Wyoming and a few other places, which are mainly folks that have moved out of our church because they're escaping the tyranny of California. But, 
Well, what a topic for another day. Sure. I mean, I, again, I feel like we, we could have hours and hours of, of conversation, but this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, and God bless you, and good luck with everything that you're doing. Thanks again, Unity. Uh, thanks again, Laura, and yes. we'll be praying for the Unity Project. Thank you. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.